Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of You Make Me Sick, a podcast where we discuss infectious diseases. Uh, normally, well, not normally, but the last few episodes have been uh, part of the herpes series. I'm going to diverge a little bit today and talk about a uh, pretty rare, but uh, possibly pandemic-causing virus that's been in the news, not even really in the news, but uh, in the infectious disease news recently. It's not well known, uh, but it has a really high mortality rate. And the fact that it takes place in areas of the country that have some densely populated areas uh, does uh, predispose it to the possibility of being a pandemic type of virus, uh, so much so that even the CDC has recognized it as uh, this type of probable or possible pandemic-causing virus. So, uh, that being said, today we're going to discuss the uh, Nipah virus, N-I-P-A-H. Uh, the Nipah virus, it comes from uh, the actual Malaysian village where it first was discovered, uh, where the first outbreak really occurred. This was back in 1998. Uh, through 1998 and 1999, uh, the Nipah virus, this was the first outbreak. This was the only one in Malaysia, uh, and I'll talk about it in a few minutes, not even a few minutes, probably a minute or two here about that Malaysian outbreak that happened. Uh, and then all the subsequent outbreaks that have happened have actually been in different parts of the world. So uh, similar area, uh, but uh, Southeast Asia mainly uh, is where they're seeing these and have seen them for the last 20 years. Uh, so what is Nipah virus? So this virus, it's a, a paramyxovirus. Uh, it's negative stranded. It's a non-segmental RNA virus. And uh, has uh, subtle differences from other paramyxoviruses. Uh, it makes it, it's kind of weird. It's an atypical virus uh, in that it isn't very similar to the other paramyxoviruses that are out there. Uh, not going to get into too much detail about the <clears throat> kind of the microbiology aspects of it uh, and the biomechanics of how it works. Uh, it has a reticular cytoplasmic inclusions that are close to the endoplasmic reticulum, if anybody's interested. Uh, this is kind of its feature that sets it aside from other paramyxoviruses. Uh, on average, it's larger than other paramyxoviruses as well. So uh, there are two different strains. Uh, as I mentioned, the first outbreak was in Malaysia. Uh, that strain is actually different from the other strains that have taken place in India and in Bangladesh. These uh, strains are about 92% identical. But they do have differences, especially in their mortality rates, and I'll talk about that a little bit too, uh, as the Malaysian outbreak had a much lower mortality rate than these outbreaks that are happening and have happened in Bangladesh and in India. So let's talk a little bit uh, just kind of about the history. So as I said, Malaysia was the first place that the, the virus was actually found, uh, the first outbreak where it happened. And that was 1998 to 1999. During that time period, there were 256 cases of this acute encephalitis that was caused by the Nipah virus, and this caused 105 deaths. So still pretty significant for a mortality rate there. Uh, this Malaysian strain was actually caused by infected pigs. So the carriers for the Nipah virus are actually fruit bats uh, or flying foxes and it's passed through either their blood or their saliva uh, or droppings. So contamination can happen pretty easily this way. Uh, it's how a lot of viruses actually spread. Uh, with this outbreak in Malaysia though, there was widespread panic just because of it was really unrecognized. Uh, there wasn't really a lot of testing for it. It was kind of a new and novel virus that they'd found. 
the mortality rate still, you know, close to like 40%, I think, which is pretty damn high. And uh, the fact that they also had to slaughter about a million pigs just to kind of get rid of the reservoir for this virus caused a huge kind of socioeconomic disruption as well. And ended up causing, you know, it rippled through Malaysia just as far as economically for a lot of people who are either pig farmers or relied on that. But that was the last time this really occurred in Malaysia. Since then, uh, the other outbreaks, as I mentioned, were in a couple of different geographic areas. So there was the Maherpur district of Bangladesh, uh, and then there's also a city called Siliguri in West Bengal, India. These both occurred in about 2001, so we're talking a couple of years later, uh, geographically completely different area. Uh, in these Indo-Bangladeshi outbreaks, there were a lot of differences from the previous outbreak in Malaysia as well. Just as far as the modes of transmission, uh, some of the clinical features as well, and uh, as I mentioned, the, the case fatality rates or mortality rates were a lot higher too. Human-to-human uh, -human transmission and uh, what they call nosocomial, which is essentially a hospital-acquired infection, uh, occurred a lot in these cases too. Uh, and these pretty much came through either droplet, so someone sneezes, coughs, these large droplets, or what they call fomitic transmission. So if you're taking care of somebody on their bed sheets, if they happen to have uh, infected blood or body fluids, uh, that can be passed back and forth as well. It's thought that in a lot of these cases, uh, because these areas, uh, some of them aren't as economically developed, uh, don't have you know super adequate healthcare, that the healthcare workers weren't using even standard precautions, so wearing gloves, washing hands, and that's how a lot of these human-to-human -human cases are actually transmitted back and forth. That's something they didn't really see a lot of in the Malaysian cases. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it, there was also questions to how the initial reservoir, like where these people got the infection from, uh, in the Indian cases, I believe it was the Indian cases, uh, it was associated with horse slaughter and eating horse meat. So there were probably horses that were reservoir for this, uh, and they were slaughtered and just, you know, a byproduct of having either their, their blood or bodily fluids and then actually eating the meat transmitted the virus. Uh, another way or another more, I would say more common way that's actually for the last 20 years they've been finding in Bengal is uh, date sap, or kind of the concentrated date juice that uh, is used a lot, uh, people drink it. This is another source that they found that uh, these fruit bats are contaminating and people are actually drinking or consuming uh, this date sap from that and then getting the virus that way. So it's, it's been around only for, you know, about 25 years now from the, the first case of it. It's, uh, there have been multiple outbreaks, as I said, uh, majority in Bangladesh over the last 20 years. Uh, still seeing some in India as well. Uh, there was an outbreak in the Philippines in 2014. And uh, so it was actually, I'm sorry, so let me correct myself. So it was actually the Philippines outbreak in 2014 where they were consuming the horse uh, and horse meat. Um, so I apologize and correct that right there. Uh, so there's questions because it's, as I said, a relatively new virus, uh, or at least discovered um, to be pathogenic to humans relatively recently. Uh, and there were questions as to why there's such a high mortality rate with this, um, why it's able to kind of have this broad species tropism, which is essentially the ability for the virus to interact with different cellular types to produce a successful, uh, successful infection. And... Uh, there's questions just on multiple modes of transmission. So it's a virus that, uh, as I said, potentially has, uh, it's con 
kind of concerning for a pandemic because it has multiple modes of transmission. Um, it's not just one reservoir that it infects, can infect multiple reservoirs. And it seems to be relatively easily transmissible too. Uh, you know, it, the Malaysian outbreak essentially was pigs. We've seen it with horses, uh, just with not even animals, just being having contaminated, you know, date syrup. So multiple ways that this can kind of be passed about. Um, the human to human transmission as well is something that can be concerning. Uh, there are, so if you have a case right now of Nipah virus, it's recommended, at least the WHO and the CDC recommends actually uh, doing airborne. So that's using like an N95 respirator or another respirator, as well as, you know, complete uh, gown and gloving, all that stuff in a medical uh, setting. So, and it's actually considered, it is a level four pathogen. So uh, other level four pathogens, uh, COVID essentially when it first came out was considered level four, but uh, Ebola, Marburg virus, really, really, uh, you know, high mortality rate and, you know, relatively easily to, to transmit. And uh, level four facilities, uh, especially in these kind of third world areas, there really aren't a lot of them, especially in the poorer areas in these countries. So uh, it's another concern where if this were to end up being something where mass amounts of people became infected with it, it would be, you know, it might be hard to contain and actually treat these people as well. Uh, so as far as the difference in the two strains, as I mentioned, the Malaysian strain, uh, a lot different from the uh, strain that you're seeing in the Bangladesh and in India. Uh, they found that there are actually higher RNA levels in the blood with the strains that are found in the Indian and the Bangladeshi strain. Uh, also in the oral secretions and uh, kind of explains a little bit just the higher secondary attack rate, which is why it's more transmissible and may even be more deadly because you just have more viral particles in the, in the bodily fluids. Uh, it should be noted as well that uh, even in the incubation period, there's viral shedding. So you can essentially spread this to people even while, you know, before you become symptomatic and show anything. So people who are initially appear asymptomatic uh, could still have the virus and pass it along to other people. So exactly why is this so deadly? Uh, it's, you know, as I said, the mortality rate, the mortality rate can be anywhere from 40% up to, there have been some outbreaks that have 100% mortality rate. On average, it's about 70%, which is really, really high. Uh, and the reason kind of why I want to bring it to, you know, the forefront right now is the most recent outbreak that they're having right now is in Bangladesh. Uh, this Bangladeshi outbreak, uh, as of the latest information that I have, to, to date this year, there have been 10 confirmed cases with seven fatalities. That is uh, the most right now that we've seen kind of on track to even, uh, even beat the prior record for that area. Uh, 2004, there were 67 cases in Bangladesh. And right now we'll kind of blow by that by early summer at this rate. And depending on, you know, transmission and how many more people are infected with this, it could go even higher than that. Uh, and the fatality rate could be, you know, much, much greater than we've seen. Uh, due to the ease of the transmission of this uh, and the high mortality rate, uh, I think it's important to kind of just keep an eye on it. That's, I'm not going to go too in-depth on the virus right now, not a lot of information on it, but I kind of wanted to have just a little episode to talk just kind of about some of the signs and symptoms uh, and what to look for and, and essentially what treatments there are right now, which really aren't a lot. 
So let's say you're in Bangladesh, you're in the middle of one of these outbreaks, uh, and you come in contact with somebody. Some of the clinical features, some of the signs and symptoms that you might start to see. Uh, if you're asymptomatic, obviously you're not really going to see much. Uh, but if you start to feel like you have a headache and fever, you get dizziness, uh, vomiting and loose stools, these are all kind of, and granted, these are all, you know, a lot of viruses and bacterial illnesses can kind of uh, produce these kind of symptoms as well. The thing that kind of sets aside Nipah virus is just the fact that it, it tends to attack the brainstem and parts of the brain that control your breathing as well as your heart rate. And the brainstem is a really, really important part of the brain. It, uh, it essentially, all the things we take for granted, just the fact that we breathe without really having to think about it, the fact that our heart beats without having to think about it, a lot of these are controlled in the brainstem. Uh, so when you start to have brainstem dysfunction, you start to see issues with that. Uh, and uh, one of the hallmarks of Nipah is actually encephalitis. So that's kind of a swelling in the brain. And it uh, usually attacks the, the brainstem, is the most prominent area. Uh, in the Malaysian outbreak, there was about 55% of the patients had a reduced level of consciousness and then some brainstem dysfunction. Uh, they also had what's called uh, myoclonus, so kind of jerking, uh, and loss of neurological reflexes. So just things like deep muscle tone reflexes. If you ever seen when they do the, they have a little hammer and they whack it on like your knee, uh, you'll lose that. Loss of muscle tone. Uh, you'll see uh, high blood pressure as well as a high heart rate associated with this as well. Uh, this is a lot of the involvement of the brainstem and then kind of the upper, upper cervical spinal cord, so kind of the top part of the spinal cord uh, before it kind of gets there into your brain, uh, have been found to be deeply involved in this. Uh, in the other outbreaks, in the Indian outbreak, as well as in the uh, Bangladeshi outbreaks, uh, pretty much the same thing. Uh, you'd have a fever, and then after like three or four days, start to see an altered mental status. Uh, and then after that, uh, you start getting these other kind of neurological symptoms. Uh, about 34% of cases will have some kind of convulsion. Uh, there is also studies that have shown that about 90% of people who are infected with the Nipah virus will have some kind of altered mental status. Uh, 73 complain of headaches, 73%. 67 have this severe, 67% have a severe weakness, uh, and there's seizures in about uh, one quarter of the people that end up uh, with the virus. Uh, the encephalitis also, uh, it can kind of, it can resolve, uh, but then you can relapse with it as well. So even though uh, the Nipah virus, you have that acute phase where it happens, but it can also lie dormant and then it will come back and you can actually have just a reoccurrence of these symptoms as well. Uh, there have also these people who have actually survived it, uh, still have complaints sometimes of psychiatric and neurological complications even after they've had the virus. So uh, there have been complaints of depression, people with personality changes, uh, attention deficit issues, uh, some people with speech issues and kind of memory issues as well. So, I mean, any time you have any type of encephalitis, any part of the brain that, you know, gets swollen, becomes compromised, you're definitely, you know, you may see these types of issues with people. So, uh, respiratory involvement as well uh, happens in some of these cases. Uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, or ARDS, uh, it happens in about uh, half to 66% of cases, which is pretty crazy. Again, I think a lot of this is partly to do just because of the brainstem and how it can affect your respiratory drive and just uh, your breathing in general. 
in uh, the outbreak in India, that first one, uh, about 54% of the cases had respiratory issues, especially later stages of the illness. And this can also, if you're somewhere that doesn't have proper health care and you start to have severe respiratory problems, it, it may be a, a life-ending situation for you if you can't get somewhere that has uh, you know, ventilators or just even people who know how to deal with uh, this type of uh, medical problem. So there's also blood abnormalities that happen with this virus. Um, it affects the liver, so it can affect some of these clotting enzymes as well. Um, you can have clotting abnormalities, about 30% of people have those. Uh, you can also have issues with your white blood cells, about 11% uh, had issues with their white blood cells. And as far as liver involvement, about 40% of patients have liver involvement as well. So you start talking about multi-organ systems here that start to fail or go downhill with this virus. Uh, and it's, that's probably contributing to this high mortality rate. Uh, people can also sometimes uh, have hyponatremia, so it's low sodium levels, which can also cause all kinds of issues. And uh, it can be diagnosed um, pretty easily. I guess depending where you are, I should say, uh, as far as diagnosis and where it goes. So um, during the early stage of the illness, uh, you can actually diagnose it uh, kind of with a sputum swab. Uh, if you do a PCR test, a reverse, transcript, reverse transcriptase PCR, uh, it can also uh, be tested uh, with uh, cerebral spinal fluid if you're really getting into, you know, if you really need to rule it out. Uh, that's kind of a really invasive procedure though, and it's something that I think unless they had no other option, um, would probably try and avoid uh, gathering cerebral spinal fluid, especially if somebody has some kind of encephalitis uh, or brainstem involvement, because you can really cause problems doing that. Uh, for people who have already had it, and you may be wondering if they had it or if they're kind of through that acute phase, you can also do uh, an immuno immunoabsorbent assay test, the uh, ELISA, IgG, and IgM. So it's enzyme-linked immunoassay, immunosorbent assay. Uh, and this can actually tell you if there's any kind of antibody present, which means you've been exposed to the virus itself. Uh, another good way to diagnose is MRIs. So uh, MRIs of the brain can actually give a pretty good radiological evidence of NEPA encephalitis. Uh, and it can actually be pretty helpful in differentiating NEPA from other types of encephalitis. So when this first happened in 2001, there was suspicion that this was actually a, a different type of encephalitis called Japanese encephalitis. And they were actually able to differentiate that uh, further down the line from the Japanese encephalitis. And the MRIs can actually help to distinguish that. I don't know exactly what to, to look for. Um, you'd have to ask a radiologist. Or you could Google it too, which is something I guess I could have done. Uh, so, uh, with the Nipah virus, let's say you're diagnosed with it, let's say you have it, let's say you got all these terrible symptoms coming up. It's, uh, how do you treat it? So there's obviously uh, pretty difficult to treat when you get to the later stages. Even in the earlier stages, there's no medications that are really approved for it right now. Uh, there's also no vaccine for it at the moment. It's, it's so rare that it happens, like I said, in kind of underdeveloped areas. So when you have diseases that happen in underdeveloped areas and you don't have a lot of people that it's affecting, even though it's got a high mortality rate, people aren't going to throw a lot of money at it to try and find some kind of cure for it. Which unfortunately, in cases like this, where you have viruses that have a potential to you know, cause some kind of a global pandemic, 
it might be nice to try and find a possible vaccine or possible some antiviral that might work for it. There are three treatments right now that they've kind of tried a little bit. Um, they've had minimal trials for them, and the trials that they did have uh, weren't a ton of participants in it, so you have a really small sample size. But we will talk about those briefly. So the first one is ribavirin. Uh, ribavirin we talked about in our RSV podcast. It's not a. It's a pretty good uh, antiviral, and uh, they thought, why not? We'll try it out for the Nipah virus. Uh, like I said, small study for this. It's still used in some cases uh, of Nipah virus when people get it. Um, I'm trying to think as far as the results they've had, kind of in vivo, so in the lab and in vitro, and actual small studies. Uh, have been a little bit promising, but it, it's hard to say how effective it is because there's no real controlled hot trial for it. So the results that they got from their initial trials that they had some success, it's really hard to say if that was something that if the ribavirin was playing any part of that at all. Um, but it's still used because it's relatively easy to get. It is available and it has a, a pretty good safety profile for a short term for short for, for short term usage. Uh, another treatment that they do, it's a monoclonal antibody. Uh, this monoclonal antibody is M102.4, which sounds like a rock station. It's uh, M102.4. Or could it actually be soft hits? I don't know. Anyway, it's an experimental monoclonal antibody. Um, I could get into how it works, uh, but uh, I'm not going to. Uh, it's You can read about it if you'd like. Uh, it, it has to do with kind of neutralizing antibodies in the body. Um, it's uh, relatively, I would say relatively new. In 2010, uh, it was actually used as a trial. Uh, and there were a couple, As a, once again, there's no real great studies for these to say, you know, how well they work. Um, that one in 2010 was just used on a couple of people who had been exposed uh, to Nipah virus. They never developed the virus. Um, they were given the antibody, but it's hard to say if it was the antibody or if maybe they just never had enough exposure to get it. Uh, there was another trial that they did, though, do with, uh, they had 14 African green monkeys, and uh, they were given the monoclonal antibody. Um, the control group of monkeys, which it doesn't tell me how many there were, they all died, but uh, only two of the 14 African monkeys died. The rest survived after being given the monoclonal antibody. So, you know, there is possibility this is a pretty effective uh, drug, but at the same time, it, uh, it, it's hard to say if, you know, how much of an effect it actually had because it's such a small sample size. Um, the last drug that is used, uh, there's an antiviral called Fivaparavir, if I'm pronouncing that right, F-A-V-I-P-I-R-A-V-I-R. So uh, it's a RNA polymerase inhibitor, so it essentially stops the, the virus from being able to procreate once it's in the cell. Uh, this was pretty successful in hamsters, so, uh, but uh, I don't know if there's even done human trials on this. Uh, so it's still not really used um, a lot, as I said. There's nothing that like the FDA has approved for it, not that we've seen cases in America anyway, and there's no real you know, cure or uh, super effective drug at this time for the Nipah virus. 
So once again, another one of those things that, that makes this a potentially really dangerous virus if it were to ever get to the point where it spread uh, on a much larger basis than it has. Uh, as far as prevention for it, what can be done? So a lot of these cases that have happened that have had uh, you know human to human spreading uh, have been traced back just to the poor poor hospital conditions essentially or whoever's taking care of these patients they don't even use the the gloves the hand washing masks anything like that so i think first line of prevention is just that so uh as i mentioned before it's considered so airborne precautions using the like an n95 respirator or just some other respirator uh, are recommended uh, and droplet precautions if you can't do that so even just a basic mask to help protect you from any kind of droplets you might breathe in and then obviously um, wearing gloves and even a gown while caring for patients but as I you know as I mentioned before too in a lot of these countries they may not even have those resources so uh, Hand hygiene is something that is mentioned over and over again when I read about this, and I always mention at the end of my podcast to wash your hands. It's the number one way just to prevent spreading, you know, a lot of disease. So I think that's another one of the issues they've had is just lack of hand hygiene, which if I may take a minute, it's so working, I work in an intensive care unit, um, and it's a medical intensive care unit, so we see our fair share of infectious diseases, and it blows my mind how many times I will see physicians come into a room not put gloves on and go and examine a patient. They'll use their stethoscopes, do the same thing. And even though they may use hand sanitizer before they come in or before they leave, it's best practice to always wear gloves no matter what you're doing when touching somebody. And it's just, it's something that I wish that uh, was reinforced a little bit more. But uh, that's just one of my gripes, one of my, uh, one of my pet peeves. And there are times where I'll call them out on it um, just because they know they should be wearing gloves any time that they're in there actually touching a patient or their surroundings. So anyway, uh, you know, kind of a uh, just one of my gripes. But uh, so as far as the Nipah virus with this mortality rate, um, I'm not going to do my typical death count that I usually do. To date, there have only been, you know, probably less than 300 deaths attributed to this virus. At the same time, uh, it's because it has such a high mortality rate, I think it's important to notice that this could change uh, drastically if there was ever to be an outbreak, uh, especially in a very densely populated area, in a densely populated area that doesn't have a lot of resources. And I'm not trying to do this podcast, uh, you know, as panic porn or sensationalized pandemics. We're just getting out of a pandemic. And this is different than, than COVID as well, um, I should mention. Just because uh, the transmissibility of COVID, uh, it was so easy to transmit from person to person, especially as we've seen with these variants, it got easier and easier to do that. The Nipah virus, I think, is a little more difficult to transmit, at least right now, thankfully. Uh, but you never know. So it, it's one of these things. I just wanted to throw it out there. Uh, Nipah virus, keep an eye out for it. You may see headlines, uh, depending if this gets worse, uh, you know, and just because it is such a, a nasty, nasty virus. But anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Another short episode. I'm going to get back to the herpes series eventually, the one everybody's been waiting for, good old genital herpes, uh, herpes simplex 2. That'll be the next one. That'll probably be the last herpes virus I do for a while. Um, but any suggestions, please let me know. Uh, like I said, we're on Twitter, uh, Make Me Sick Pod uh, on Twitter. 
Uh, as always, you can email me at youmakemesickpod at gmail.com. Always like feedback. Uh, any suggestions, please let me know. Um, you know, I, I enjoy doing this, but sometimes run out of ideas. So it's good to have people kind of suggest stuff for me. Especially stuff people want to hear. Uh, the stuff that I'm interested in might not exactly be what you're interested in. Uh, so give me a shout. Um, once again, thank you guys very much. And remember, uh, always wash your hands. How does it feel to be a smartass?